Well, if you're new with us this morning, we've been going through the book of Matthew now for nearly two years, definitely over a year and a half. And what you might see again and again, something that clearly shows itself to unfold through various types of passages that are before us and in various patterns of the the ways that Matthew has uh, scribed his gospel to us is that there is an agenda that he is portraying to his people about who Jesus is. Matthew is very intentionally and very precisely aiming to show us that, that Jesus has arrived and has with him a gracious agenda. There's a way to look at Scripture book by book. You know, the Scriptures are arranged by 66 independent books comprising the the Old and the New Testament, and every book has within it, uh, you could say, its own melody, its own rhythm, its its own beat that makes it different. And alongside this melody, there is a recurring theme that is pronouncing itself on God's people. And in the book of Matthew, this melody is that Jesus, the Messiah King, perfectly fulfills all of the Old Testament. What Matthew was demonstrating to his people is one clear theme that Jesus, the Messiah King, both Messiah and King, he is climactically, amazingly to us, is he not, showing that Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament in its entirety. This is why you can't separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. This is why you can't overemphasize one testament over another. You have to see that what Jesus is doing is looking back and say, all of that is finding its fulfillment in me. So then going forward, you should respond precisely according to who I am. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you have probably had, uh, and this is not a bad question to ask, you have probably had a question that has gone through your mind as you hear people who call themselves Christians tell each other that one of the themes that is in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus, the Messiah King, is climatically fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies If you're here and you're not a Christian, you might be asking yourselves regularly, are these guys nuts? I mean, are Christians insane? We all look at people around town and we all ask this kind of question about them, right? You see people and you go, man, there's something something wrong. He's a good guy. There's something wrong with that guy. And just in all honesty, if if you're here and you're not a Christian, you ask the question, are these guys nuts? Now, Matthew has a unique way to answer that. He is describing for all of us, both those who are redeemed and those who are not, he is involving his teaching toward us that all that Jesus is doing is bringing the kingdom of heaven finally to earth. The kingdom of heaven, those uh, three words, the kingdom of heaven is actually very unique to the gospel of Matthew. You might have heard of the kingdom of God. You might have heard of the kingdom of heaven, and there is, a, there is a precise and unique way for why Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God, or the kingdom, or the new kingdom, or the heavenly heavenlies, but he is using the kingdom of heaven in a precise way. Now, there are three ways to look at the kingdom of heaven. The first one is just to see them as interchangeably. So you might use uh, the kingdom of heaven, or I might use the kingdom of God, just like how some of us, when we pray, we might say, Lord, we might say, God, we might say, Father, we might say heavenly Father. We just use that interchangeably, right? Well, that that is not why Matthew is using the kingdom of heaven. Another way to look at it is what is called reverential circumlocution. Don't even try to look it up because it's not what he's trying to do. But here, some people believe that, that Matthew is intentionally using what is called reverential circumlocution, where he, Matthew, is replacing God with heaven because it is known that Matthew is writing particularly to Jewish people. 
So as if to not allow them to be hung up on, did he just say the kingdom of God? Did he just say the kingdom of, did he just say the kingdom of the Lord? Why is he using those words in particular? It might have been a stumbling block for Jewish people over meticulous uses of God's name. And that's not why Matthew is using the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God. There is a precise reason why Matthew uses heaven. The kingdom of heaven involves with it a understanding that there is a cosmic battle that has been going on from the beginning between heaven and earth. And for the longest time, God's people have been waiting for the Messiah to come and to arrive with the full force and warrant of that heavenly kingdom to wipe out all of the enemies. And it's in that way when Jesus shows up and describes himself as the Messiah, the very king of heaven, the very king that they have been waiting for, it was striking for him to use that language because not only was he finally here, but then it would add to their confusion when he is not wiping out physically their enemies around them. So Matthew is intentionally trying to contrast two realms that are at battle royale against each other, the heavenly power and the earthly power. Now, a lot of this, it it stands for God on the one hand and humanity on the other. Uh, One systematic theologian, Burkhoff, says that heaven, whenever we think about heaven, especially the kingdom of heaven as arriving, we think of heaven as the eternal abode of the righteousness of God. Or John MacArthur says that whenever we hear the kingdom of heaven, we should have in our minds that it is the domain in which Jesus' lordship is even now fully operative. It is the sphere of salvation that has been brought to his people, that eternal realm where the redeemed have their true citizenship. So it's different in ways that you and I can't really even fully fathom, but Jesus has brought the kingdom of God with him as he has come incarnate to the earth. And he's trying to to help us understand what this kingdom is by giving us granted or by giving us precise pictures. He says that in the kingdom of heaven, it's the poor who are actually valued more than the rich. So that should paint a picture of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. He says in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says that the worst, the very worst people are freely forgiven. That's what the kingdom looks like. In the kingdom of heaven, the small, faithful seed produces the largest tree. Or in the kingdom of heaven, the the pictured farmer plants a seed generously wherever he would go to the full stretch of the earth. And like any kingdom, the kingdom of heaven just just isn't a physical reality that has now arrived to the earth. It has within it a king. And this is where his listeners would be a little bit confused on who this king is and what this king is doing because this king actually comes to the earth through the womb of a virgin. And this is why some of you, if you're not Christians, you go, yep, that's where it starts. I think you guys are nuts. Or the kingdom, uh, or the king of this very heaven comes as a poor baby. Or the king of heaven comes as a servant. The king of heaven enters into town, not on a great white horse, but first on a donkey. Yet he still is telling everyone that he is the king of this heaven that has arrived. And Jesus is preaching that he, the person of Nazareth, is that very king. He's turning the world upside down, though first through his life, and then it will come from his own death. And then finally, when he arrives again, he will conquer with the sword. So he brings this good news to everyone who hears, where the good news is that our holy God has not abandoned his people due to their sin, but has sent them now a Messiah, a king, 
in order to rescue them for himself through this king's death and then resurrection, where God the Son has come and will die according to the scriptures so that we can be redeemed or remade. Now, naturally, men and women are are separated from God, and the Holy Spirit would then, in sending the Son, then the Son sending the Spirit, the Holy Spirit would then awaken his people to the reality of the position of their sin that would then cause them to turn and repent from their sin to a life of faith in Christ alone for their salvation. And by this, his people would have new life, a life that is fulfilling here and will be finally filled when Jesus returns in full form on the last day. Now, I know, again, some of you are going, you keep highlighting reasons for me to think you're crazy. And Christians, are we? Christians believe that all that Jesus does flows from who he is. He's God in flesh. He's king with power. And as king, he brings his kingdom wherever he would go. Like how the president of our country, wherever he would fly around the world, he brings the full faith and power of the United States government and military with him. That plane has missiles on it, right? And wherever Jesus arrives... Friends, the kingdom is there with him because a king will not go anywhere without his kingdom. Now today, in our passage, Matthew has recorded three parables, three more more helpful uh, literary devices for us to understand his kingdom a little bit better. Matthew ties, so Matthew, the author of of this text, and seeing Jesus teach these parables, he has tied these three particular parables together to show you something precisely. Through a parable of a treasure, through a parable of a pearl, and then thirdly, through a parable of a dragnet or a net, you need to see that the kingdom of God is is one thing. The kingdom of God is awesome. Now, awesome is a word that is way overused in our culture, and I do it too. Anything we see is awesome. You know, you microwave a bowl of soup, and you go, man, it's pretty awesome what that microwave did, right? Right? You start the fire with one match. That's awesome. You, you do all kinds of things. We are so used to saying everything's awesome. Everything is awesome. There's even a Lego movie with a song called Everything is Awesome. But you need to understand that there is one thing that is clearly awesome in our scripture, and that is Christ in his kingdom. I had a professor in seminary who would immediately rebuke anyone who would accidentally say, oh, man, that's really awesome. He would go, that's not awesome. God is awesome. That would happen like 100 times a semester. And you're like, I get it. I'm wrong. And he would go, then act like it. Anyway, (laughs) coaches never stop coaching, do they? But what Jesus is doing here is he is describing that the kingdom of God exclusively is awesome. He is speaking to people who are confused. He's speaking to people who are interested. He's speaking to people who seem to be bought into what he is saying, but he he is aiming to put things in perspective and focus for those who know him and understand him. And parables here are revealing Things to those who can see. We see the purpose of a parable are for those who can see God and his grace. A parable is like, it's like lights that blink up in our brains and go, oh, I, I get it. That's a, that's a better picture of who God is in his love. While at the same time, a parable further covers the eyes of those who cannot see. They, they leave his instruction even more confused than when they come altogether. So Christian, be encouraged from God's word What God reveals to you is how his kingdom, which you surrender yourself to, 
Though people may doubt your sanity, his kingdom is awesome. I want to give this to you in two ways. So if you're using an outline provided on your bulletin, it has nothing listed there. But I want to give you two main points. And the first point is this. The kingdom of God, and using the first two parables, is first, awesomely valuable. The kingdom of God is awesomely valuable. The kingdom of heaven is awesomely valuable. Look at verse 44, the first part of verse 44. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Now, treasure, in this ancient culture in particular, there wasn't things like a bank or a safety deposit box. When, when outlaws would threaten or when war would wreak havoc, and this would force people to flee and be immigrants to another area, people would leave behind their treasures by burying them, not putting them into a bank, not carrying them with them. They would bury their treasures, often in clay jars. And if, and if those who fled did not return, their treasure was lost until someone stumbled upon it. And in this parable of the kingdom of heaven, we see that there is a laborer who does that very thing. He stumbles across this treasure that had been left behind. So look again at verse 44 in the second part of it. It says, when a man found it, this treasure, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that particular field so that he would now own that treasure for himself. Now, the behavior of this laborer or this worker who finds a treasure and buries it is somewhat troubling to us, right? We're like, is that ethically right? Did that guy just sneak attack someone to get their treasure? But, but he, did, he did nothing that violated the laws at that time, right? So he didn't do anything ethically wrong. This isn't a case of, like, how, how good can you get away with doing something right? Apparently, anyone who found something in a field was entitled to keep it, yet to be sure If the treasure had great value, it was best to keep the treasure buried, and then it would purchase that field, because as you might go and try to purchase that field, someone else might come along and go, wow, look at that crown. I'm going to have that for myself now. Yeah, you might have remembered the the great novel, the great American novel, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's been made into a movie, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, but the novel is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, where the main premise behind Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is that this maniac chocolatier wanted to invite five people to get a tour of his hidden kingdom or his hidden chocolate factory. And the way that you would be invited is he would just scatter about five golden tickets placed in his own chocolate. So if you bought, like modern day, a Snickers bar or a Mars bar, if you bought one of those and you had inside of it a little golden ticket, oh my goodness, you could get to go tour that facility. Who knows what you could do at Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Now, what would you do If you were in a chocolate store and you saw a bar there, but there was a little glimmer on that bar. There was a little bit of gold sticking out of the side. And there's like 20 other people in that store with you. And you're like, all right, I'm I'm third in line. I'm third in line. I want that one right there. Don't look at it because people look at it. Don't look at it. And then it's finally yours. What would you do if you knew that if you got that golden ticket, you could go to or Charlie's or Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory? You would buy it, right? And you would make sure that no one else could buy it. And in fact, you would do anything you could to acquire that golden ticket. Now that, with regardless of the customs of the, of the ancient day, Jesus' main point is clear. The kingdom is awesomely valuable. It is worth everything we possess. Now, of course, the kingdom is not for sale, right? Indeed, uh, we can do nothing to acquire it, but if it were for sale, if we had to sale, sell all that we had to gain it, we would. It It took all the worker had, but he bought the field. Despite its small beginning and great cost, it was was worth all that he had. The kingdom of God 
is so awesomely valuable that it is worth everything that we have. So in fear, when we wonder, are we chasing after something that seems like a dream? Friend, no, the kingdom has arrived with his king, and he is saying that this kingdom is so valuable, it is awesomely valuable. Now look at the next parable that Matthew gives to us from Jesus' word, the, the pearl, the parable of the pearl. In the next parable, you see a man once again finds something of great value, and he sells all that he has to acquire it. Look again at verses 45 through 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now with this parable, it it reaffirms the supreme value of the kingdom of heaven, but it adds a little bit of twist here. There's a little bit There's a little bit difference between one parable and the other parable. There's a reason why Matthew is combining these two because they are uh, attacking an angle of interpretation a particular way. It adds a twist. The first parable, the worker stumbles upon the treasure. And here we have a merchant who is actually searching for particular fine pearls, and he knows pearls. He's a pearl master, you could say, and he sees one pearl in particular that's worth more than all the riches that he owns. And so he sells it all to obtain that one pearl. And this twist is like many of you. You might stumble upon the kingdom. You weren't looking for it. But by the happiest accident, maybe a very random conversation occurred with a stranger where they told you about the arrived kingdom of God. Or some of you have searched high and low for spiritual truth. You, you had eternity placed on your heart and you examined every religion, every philosophy, every ideology, Christianity included. You turned the the claims of Christ over and over in your mind and conclude that nothing matches the kingdom and Jesus' kingdom. Now remember, I want you to be careful in how you interpret parables. Remember, I talked briefly a couple weeks ago about how there's, there's two ways, really, to read a parable. A parable can be like an onion where you can constantly just peel back different layers until you continue to see things again and again and again. You could stare at this parable forever. You could stare at this passage forever. And you constantly learn things. Another way to read a different parable is like a joke with a punchline at the end, or you, you draw back an arrow at a bullseye and you shoot it and it thuds into the target where there's a punch there. You need to see them as something to continually examine or you need to embrace their punch on your own life in particular. These two parables, unlike the onion, they have a punch to them. And I'll get to that punch in a second. But first, what I don't want you to think of this parable or of these two parables is about purchasing the kingdom of God. Do not be distracted by the trees in the midst of the forest. This parable is not about purchasing the value of the kingdom yourself. Both parables are using metaphors of a purchase, but we must be careful not to oversee what appears to be there. These parables aren't theological instruction about purchasing God. You can't. That's a super dangerous concept. Now, by the way, it's also not a parable about owning land or selling everything you have for Jesus. That's not the point. That's not the punch of the passage here. Now, hear me. Jesus and his gospel and his kingdom are worth all that we have, but we do not literally buy the kingdom. We do not have enough in order to buy the kingdom. We do not pay money for it. We cannot pay for it ourselves, nor can we do anything to earn it. Now, you hear people all the time under the influence of this proper view of buying the kingdom say things like, I want to get right with God and I'll do whatever it takes. Friend, you cannot do whatever it takes to buy the love of God. 
only one man could. I remember when I was in high school, I may have told the story here, but when I was in high school, I was a pitcher, and I always had cramps in my legs. Not out of pickle juice. I don't know why. I always had cramps in my legs. And I would, in the dugout, barter with God. God, if you get me through this inning, I will, I will read a proverb every day this month. God, if you, and a lot of you have circumstances just, God, if you deliver me through this, then I will serve you. You are, you are trying to buy God's love or buy the kingdom of God. What this passage is not saying is that you can buy the kingdom of God. We do not pay money for it, nor can we do anything to literally buy it. We receive his rule and his blessing by grace alone, by God's grace coming to us alone through faith alone that he has granted us. Jesus does all that is necessary in bringing his kingdom to his people. The supreme treasure of the kingdom is the gospel of the kingdom. Now, to the punch of the parable. If that was the distracting part, don't buy into that. Here's the punch. There are some different thoughts in applying this text. There are some who believe that this text is to be instructive on discipleship. Or this is, this is a parable about the cost of following Jesus, the cost of discipleship. And I think that's kind of fine, but I don't think that's the aim of the text at all. Right? You, can, you can pull from this text, I think, improperly. If you like, see how much it costs to follow Jesus? It costs that guy everything. That's not the punch of this text. It's even more beautiful than that. And I think this text is a simple and awesome aim, and that aim is not about your situation at all. The aim of this text is about God's awesome glory, his kingdom's insurmountable value, its overwhelming value to his people. How valuable is the kingdom? You might imagine asking Jesus. He would say, simple. It is the most valuable thing that you would ever come across. You cannot believe how much it would stop you in your tracks if you were just going about your own business. Or put another way, using the second parable, you might ask, how valuable is the kingdom of God? Simple. If you were out and about looking for something valuable and you came across this kingdom, this new life, you would stop and sell everything you could to get it. That's how valuable, that's how awesome the kingdom of God is. It is the most valuable opportunity presented to you and simultaneously the most valuable thing that you could ever come across. It alone is the most glorious thing in the world. My friend, if you love to study, God's word, the ins and outs, and the particular things of the text, and I mean this, good for you, and keep going, but do not miss the forest amongst the trees. These two parables pack a punch. They're not an onion to forever be peeled. This isn't about buying the kingdom or how the kingdom presents itself. This isn't about this Middle Eastern view of how treasure is to be valued or what a pearl is or how you should own property or what are property rights and how you might sell your house today if you really wanted to be a Christian. No, see the glory of the forest. The kingdom of God is so good, so glorious, so awesome that its value is breathtaking. It stops everyone in their tracks. The Son of God shows up, places himself in front of you, you and all your sin, you and all your sorrow, you and all your circumstances, and has said, come to me. Whatever your kingdom is, come to me and my kingdom. And it does demand a response. And the call of these two parables, the call of this first part, that God's kingdom is so awesomely valuable, is that it asked you, do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe it? That the kingdom is worth 
all of you, that it demands all of you, that it calls all of your soul. Friends, the call of this passage is if you find yourself far off, believe that the kingdom of God has arrived and he has come to save sinners. Trust that only he is the one who can save you from your iniquity or your sin or your wrongness and rest in the reality that when you are in his kingdom, there is nothing that is worthy of your want beyond its walls and receive him for how he presents himself, the kingdom of God with the king within it has come to you. It says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. Isn't it amazing how these two parables are meant to teach us that when men and women are really convinced of the value of the kingdom, they'll respond with their whole life and receive eternal life. So, are Christians crazy? No. God in Christ has revealed the kingdom to us for what it is. And we believe it. It is awesomely valuable. But that's not all. Matthew goes on to show us in Christ is that he will then tell his people that his kingdom is not just valuable, but it is awesomely pure. So second, if you're writing down notes or using an outline, that the second thing that Matthew is highlighting here in this, in this uh, triple deck form of teaching is that the kingdom is awesomely pure. Awesomely pure. The third parable in this section of Scripture can stand on its own. Many of you have maybe heard this on its own, heard it preached on its own. That's fine. It shows the purity of the kingdom. It's technically called a similitude parable because Jesus, in his teaching, he's teaching about what the kingdom is like. So over and over again, he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. The parable, because he is teaching what the kingdom is like, is this or that. And here, the kingdom is like a dragnet. Now, if you're like me, you don't know what a dragnet is. You just kind of think that that is a show that your parents used to watch in the 80s. Dragnet, right? So you Google it. A dragnet is a massive fishing net. It's a massive fishing net that today can only be carried around by boats. Or in that time, lots of people would throw out a net altogether because it was such a massive net. And it would be thrown out into the sea. And by weight, it would sink to the bottom of the water. And then it would be finally dragged into the boat where people would catch the fish. The parable is written for one intention, though. It's intended to have one explanation. It, too, has a punch with it. Don't think of like a narrative story with a plot line. Don't look too much at the characters. Don't look too much at the setting. It's not about, you know, there's a lot of ways that I found this week, a lot of ways for this parable to be interpreted differently. It is not about the ministry of the church. This seems to be a popular way of interpreting things since around the three or four hundreds of, of saying, this is what the church is like. You know, we're supposed to go out and gather fish by ourselves where the net is just the church and the sea is the world and the people are all the nations that are being brought in. That, that seems like that'll preach. That's an allegory. That's not a parable here. That will come in other parts of scripture, but that is not what this text is talking about. Don't take away from the text by trying to add in meaning to it. That might possibly be insightful, but that is overreading things. This isn't a missions text. This isn't a text about how you and I are supposed to operate as cross-point church. It's also not a text about the personality of Jesus in his love for the universality of all of people. Verse 47, it says, of every kind, but that's not the thrust of the text. He doesn't love the world and will save them from all nations and tribes, though he does, but that's not the point of this text that would take away from the gravity of the text by trying to aim at it that way. It is also not a warning about false disciples. 
where people may think that they're fish because they're caught up in the net and they're not really the right kind of fish. That's reading too much into it too. That, those, all of those ideas have been thoughts and proposed by, by good people from the text as a way to use the text. You, know, you can imagine using it as, are you the right kind of fish? The net's coming. But the text has a point. There's a clear emphasis here, a clear explanation that you should hear from Jesus' own words about the, about the kingdom. And we know this from the text's own context. You'll see it. The, the, the text of this parable is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50. And these, these words very closely, if you've been here for several weeks, these words very closely resemble the parable of the wheat and the weeds just before it. The wheat and the weeds. You see the parallel of these words in verses 24 through 30. Think of, think of its own interpretation. Its own interpretation parallels the, the wheat and weeds as well. In verse 49, it talks about angels coming up to help with judgment. And that closely follows in line with the wheat and the weeds in its own refrain. Where are they bringing these things that are going to cast out there, throwing them into a fire? Hearing the sounds of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, this parable is not an allegory of things that we can look into. We need to feel the weight of the punch here. This parable is not saying that the kingdom of God is like a net. It's not saying that the kingdom of God is like the sea, nor the shore. The kingdom of God in this passage is not like a fisherman or types of fish that can be caught. We, I told you last week that we have to be careful when we read parables not to overlap their symbols, not to overlap their uses. So fish might be something different in that parable versus this parable. We saw the seed acting a unique way in the parable of the soils versus the parable of the weeds. We need to make sure that the point of this text are not in these particular characters. The, the parable is saying the kingdom of heaven is the, pro, is the process of dragnet fishing. What's the result of dragnet fishing? Think of it like this. What's the point of playing a game? You know, Monopoly or baseball. What's the point of playing a game? Isn't to be around your family? Is the point of playing a game for good fellowship? Is the point of playing a game to learn to play nice? Maybe learning life lessons, enjoying good company? No, that's not why you play a game. That's loser talk. For all you coaches and players in the room, why do you play a game? To win. There's one reason why you play a game, it's to win. Or think about, what's the point of going to college? Some of you who have gone to college or want to go to college, what's the point of going to college? Is it to gain experience? Is it to meet new people? Is it to find your place in life, to struggle hard, to, to succeed, to have a good time? No. No. Why do you go to college? To graduate. You, you, you can do a lot of other things that are way less than college, right, that give you experience or success or failures. Why do you go to college? To graduate. Now think of dragnet fishing. Why do you dragnet fish? Is it to be out in the water? To enjoy creation? To make money? To hang with the bros? Work with your hands? No. What's the point of dragnet fishing? To gather all the fish and to judge which ones to keep. This parable is about judgment. Where there's a separation that will take place and the fish have no control over the timing. They're just hauled in. And then they're divided and separated. One by their evilness and one by their righteousness. Friends, I want you to sit under the weight of this parable. Fish were just out in the sea doing what fish do. And then in an instant, a rough, heavy, 
weighted net, jam them all together and scoops them up out of the sea where they can no longer breathe for one purpose, to throw evil fish in a fiery furnace. The kingdom of God is the process of separating the righteous and the unrighteous. Here it is, guys. Though you're doing your own thing, whatever that is, there will be judgment. The parable of the dragnet focuses on the reality that the king of the kingdom describes the kingdom as pure, where on the last day he will gather together all people. There and then he will reject the unrighteous as worthless. No need for this. But then he will keep the righteous for future service and safekeeping. Now think of it in context. Jesus is teaching people who are wanting the kingdom to come and smash their present enemies. That, that is their hardness of heart towards Jesus of Nazareth right now. They, they hear him talking about being the Messiah. They hear him talking about bringing the kingdom of heaven with them. And they're going, when's it going to happen? And what Jesus shows is that his kingdom has come. It's calling people to itself for safety. It's good. It's a generous kingdom. You see that in the parable of the soils. It's secret and encouraging. That's the point of parables, just after the parable of the soils. It's patient. It's a patient kingdom. You saw that in the parable of the weeds. It's powerful. You see that in the parable of the mustard seed. It's all encompassing. It is intense. You see that in the parable of the leaven. It is valuable. You see that in the treasure. It is worth everything. You see that in the parable of the pearl. And now here the kingdom, when time has run out and at a time that is unknown to us, the kingdom will swiftly judge you by whether you are evil and righteous. Friends, if you're not a Christian, you may look at the kingdom and think it's not as valuable as some say it is. You may look at Christians and say, those guys are nuts. You may look at the kingdom and think it doesn't solve your problem or your circumstance today. And here's what I think the context of this passage gets at. Jesus says that the kingdom is the most valuable thing that you can think of And your response is, I don't care. But rest assured, that will not stop the reckoning from coming and dragging you in to give an account of your heart. Your neglect won't stop the purity of judgment that God's kingdom has within it. Everyone will be caught up in the king's reach and then judged. The kingdom isn't on your schedule or mine. It's not according to your values. It's not according to your vision. It's not according to your desire or even your hopes. The kingdom doesn't come to you on your account. It's pure on its own. The kingdom doesn't need you. It's so awesomely pure that it will have no dealing with unrighteousness or evil or sin. It's so pure that it'll have nothing to do with evil. So the call of this passage is even in our neglect of seeing the value of the kingdom itself, even in our laissez-faire approach towards life, even as our approach is, I think I'm in the kingdom, but it doesn't really teach me to do anything or it doesn't respond to my current circumstances. If Jesus knew what I was going through, he would tell me a different parable, surely. And what Jesus says is that he is calling you to call upon him to save you from your sins. I want to conclude with, uh, I hope you see the glory in Christ from these three parables recognizing the the awesome value of the kingdom. Isn't it it overwhelming and just amazing? The true value of it, it it sweeps us up in all of its glory. 
when we spend all of our life seeking for value or seeking for comfort or seeking for our own esteem, seeking for fulfillment in the things of this world, it is Jesus who is one who came and presented himself to us in all glory and honor and laud, the hymn says. But note, finally, the worst of the use, uh, note the, the use of the word again in this passage is repeated. He is Jesus repeating this common phrase to highlight the progressive attention of drawing us towards himself. Scripturally, Jesus is the treasure worth our attention. Scripturally, Jesus is the pearl worth our all. Scripturally, Jesus is the one to whom belong all the righteous on that last day. Yes, there are some who will be cast out in the flames of fire, but the others will be held on to. Friends, as you take this text and you look forward, I want to segue into us partaking of the Lord's Supper together because I think there's a clear connection here. Jesus is in particularly saying something to us that the kingdom has arrived and he is telling us all about what the kingdom is. But he will show, according to our text, and has shown historically that he will do one thing in particular to have that kingdom be illuminated within our hearts where he will come And he will show that he is the one who was dragged in. He is the one who had a price on his head. He is the one who was the most valuable person in the world who would give himself over as a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true and clear about who you are and what you have done for us. Oh Lord, we pray that you would continue to teach us about the worth and glory of your kingdom and the purity of your word. Our God, as we approach now your table, we ask that you would show us the beauty of this sign of the gospel. We pray this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and then crucified the next day, the night before he was crucified by those who knew him, Greatly, he had a final dinner or a last supper with his disciples. And as Jesus was eating with his disciples, he gave them a picture or a sign of the gospel. What Jesus did at the last supper was he took what was bread and he took a cup of wine. He then divided that piece of bread and passed it around as a meal for those whom he loved dearly. He said that they should take it, that they should eat this bread as a sign or as a memorial of his body. He then took that cup of wine, and he drank it, and he passed it around to his disciples. And he said that this this cup filled with this wine is a sign of what will happen to me, where I will be given over. My life will be poured out as a ransom for those. Now, in this church, we believe that Christians should regularly observe the Lord's Supper. So we are partaking, if you're new, we are partaking much like they did then 2,000 years ago today, because we believe, and Jesus' word is clear, that that the Lord's Supper points us back to the very death of Christ. At his death, he was killed for us. His blood was shed for us, assuring us of the salvation that he gave to his people. So we We use the Lord's Supper as looking back, but we also use the Lord's Supper as looking around in many ways, recognizing that we are not in this fight against evil by ourselves, but we are surrounded with other professing Christians who are saying, 
I am in the same battle, and I am in this battle for you. But the Lord's Supper doesn't only look back, it doesn't look around, it also looks forward, because Jesus is clear in his text that this is his last supper with his disciples here. But there will be a day where he will come, and that feast will not just be with bread, and it won't just be with wine, but it'll be the most amazing feast we could ever imagine. So Christians, if you are here today and you are a repentant sinner, if you are here today recognizing your sinfulness, your brokenness, recognizing that you are unworthy to go up to this awesomely pure and powerful kingdom's table, recognize that this table is for you because Jesus gave it to you to celebrate, to remember, to reorient our hearts away from the world and toward the finished work of Christ. Now, Paul says that all of us ought to examine ourselves. Before we come to the table, you should confess your sin to the Lord, and then you can take the elements with confidence in the forgiveness of your sins because Jesus really died, and he really rose from the grave after he said, take and eat. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ Jesus, I want to ask you to not partake of this because of the significance of this act that was done for God's people. Instead, I want to ask you to use this time to consider the gospel that you've heard today and hopefully before, to, to hear and remind yourselves of the claims of Christ. If you have questions about the gospel, I want to talk to you afterwards. Call me on my phone, talk to someone else around. What does this gospel mean? You may have questions, and that's good. Ask those. And for those of you who are here today who profess to be believers, but your life is marked with unrepentant sin, the warnings of 1 Corinthians from the Apostle Paul are especially directed towards you. We should not just understand how we ought to receive the supper in joy, but we also should understand why we receive the supper and our posture towards receiving it. I want to encourage you, if you are in unrepentant sin today, to hear the warnings of Scripture and not participate with us, but allow that moment of of feeling the absence of the fellowship with the table as a catalyst to spur you towards him in faith and repentance. And if you are under formal church discipline at this church, or you are coming here under church discipline from another church, I want to ask you to take this posture as well. Abstain yourself from this food and go to Jesus as your Redeemer and your Forgiver. I'm going to pray, and there are tables all around the room, up front, around the side, up in the balcony. Uh, I want to ask, after I finish praying, go to those freely. Take both of the elements back to your chair with you, and we'll take them together in a second. And if you feel like you can't get up, whether you don't want to be around people, or it's difficult for you to get up, One of our deacons will come down the center aisle. You'll just raise your hand. They'll bring you the elements. But let me pray, and then let us go enjoy God's table. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that by your spoken word, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of the Lord. O God, our Savior, we thank you that when you said take and eat, we know that we can because of your son's work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.